Welcome to the third bonus episode of Oimi Talks. I'm your host, David Petro, and on these three bonus episodes, we've been highlighting the featured speakers of the upcoming Oimi Conference in May in Oshawa. Check out the previous two episodes where each of the featured speakers told us a bit about their featured session as a preview to the conference. In this episode, we're going to hear briefly from each of our speakers, but instead of hearing about their featured session, I asked them all the same question. I asked them if there was anything they believed about teaching or learning when they began their careers that they no longer believe. I wasn't sure what to expect, but was pleasantly surprised at how different the answers were. From things like mathematics is not about computation, to the importance of the humanities, to the idea of changing the structure of the school day. So let's get started with our featured speakers from day one of OME 2020. We'll hear from Mary Barassa, Dan Meyer, Marion Small, Ian Vandenberg, and Valerie Camille Jones. So the biggest thing for me is if we teach it, then they learn it, <laughs> um, right? You know, you have the perfectly planned lesson and everything's clear and makes sense. So obviously students will get it, right? And some kids will, but it actually takes a lot of work to figure out what students aren't understanding and then to help them to get to that place where it makes sense. Uh, this has become even more apparent to me since I've had my own children and been sitting working through homework or teaching them concepts at home. So I observe my students a lot to see like on their faces when that light bulb moment is and when they're still grappling with the mathematics that we're trying to you know, impart to them. Um, so being effective, I think, hinges largely on the relationships you build in your classroom. Because if I don't know my kids, I can't tell when they're understanding and when they're not. So, but of course, I'm still working on all of this. I used to think that the humanities, you know, uh, literature, social studies, that kind of thing, were were more dissimilar from math than they are alike. And now I've come to see and enjoy seeing all the commonalities and the ways that that literature and English and the humanities are taught that math class that, that are in common with fantastic math classes, the way that um, both really effective classes draw on what students know, and they emphasize early forms of knowledge from students, whether that's opinions about the theme of a novel in literature, or it's about the early ways that students see number and pattern and shape in math class. So I've just really been reveling recently in, rather than, you know, seeing in front of me this tall wall between me and the humanities to peek on the other side of that wall and say, oh, wow, like there's so much that's so interesting and so valuable here for math educators and to learn from that. That's a, a really interesting insight because I, 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 Myself, as a student, I always felt that I didn't need any of those other things. Give me my math and science, that's all I needed. And, and really, I feel like I've come around full circle and, and have really started to see the importance of those other subject areas, especially the arts and the creativity side, which I really never gave credence to as a student, but I see the importance of it right now for sure. Yeah, you see how, how it uh, helps to, helps around out the folks like you, like me perhaps also, that really enjoyed like, I don't know, certain aspects of math that, you know, as, a, as an adult, like I actually really, I, I've benefited more as an adult from learning to live with ambiguity that I, I would have found in the humanities or less of the emphasis on binary rightness and wrongness that you find in some math classes. And so that's part of why I'm so excited to you know, blend the two humanities and mathematics science into one more complete pedagogical whole body. Actually, um, I don't think there's anything substantial that I've changed my mind about. So I'm sure there's details and I, 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 can't even articulate quickly what they are, 
But I think I've always believed that teachers are the key, that teachers have the potential to teach well if only people help them see what teaching well looks like. And so none of that's really changed for me. One of the interesting projects I've been involved here at the university over the last couple of years now is looking at a university level of what effective teaching really is and what that means. And it's been really interesting and eye-opening for me as somebody who had been teaching for a long time before I started into this project to really delve into the intricacies of what teaching really means and of just all of the parts from the course design to the to the actual delivery of the course, to the the way that students receive that, to the way that we then as as teachers grow and develop along the way. And I think that I think being part of that over the last few years has really been has really opened my eyes to thinking about how complicated and complex teaching really is and what what a difficult job it is for every educator out there who is on the ground every day in the classroom with different groups of students and uh, with all of the challenges that come with that, it, it's a rewarding job, but it is an awfully hard job to do. And I have huge respect for everybody who does that in whatever capacity it is. You know, that answer totally resonates with me because uh, I know for myself, when I started teaching, there was probably a little bit of arrogance in the sense that, you know, I know this material. So it shouldn't, yeah, it shouldn't be yeah. really hard for me. It should be like, you know, hold my beer, you know, I'm ready to go yeah. kind of thing. And, you know, I, I was really mu- very much on autopilot before. And it wasn't until, it, like you say, it's when you start to, to really piece together what all the things about how students learn and the makeup of a course and you, and you start to start to piece all that together. It really is a complex task uh, if we want it to be successful. Yeah. And I, th- I think one of the one of the interesting things that I occasionally spend time thinking about around here is that unlike in the context of elementary schools and secondary schools, generally speaking, we at universities never get taught how to teach, and never have any instruction in that. And then we're we're tossed into the classroom. And many of us could stand to think about this a little bit more. And I think I'm hoping that through the work that we've been doing here recently around teaching effectiveness, that we will move the needle a little bit on that and get people to spend a little bit more time thinking about that important part of their career. So I mentioned in the beginning that I am a chic geek, which means I love science fiction. I love, I mean, I love Marvel. I love video games. I love all that stuff. And when I was growing up, I separated my kind of, cosplay, like, you know, fun, entertaining video game self from my, this is the procedures, the step-by-step way of doing mathematics. It's got to be nice and clean. And I never thought about merging the two. And about maybe 10 years into my teaching, I realized that, you know, I can take things I'm interested in, that I'm interested in, and I can put it in the lessons and it appealed to students as well. And math does not have to be routine. I really thought you teach lots of strategies. I, you give the students like six strategies and those six strategies, they just rotate within each other. And that's the key to success. And that is not the case. Math is not computational. 
is not computational. And I, I had to let go of that because that like, I guess, line by line type of way of thinking was how I thought math had to be. And with taking science fiction and fun and putting it into my lessons, I realized that really math is about a conceptual understanding of the topic. And you can use billions of methods to figure out the answer. And they can involve visual, creative things. They can involve real life scenarios. They can involve things that are not just follow these steps and memorize these steps. And it was mind blowing when I realized that. And so now when I teach, I have to really get students to learn how to use, you know, inferring things with math, not just with English class, but making those inferences in math to figure out how to make their own connections to answer. And it was very, a different way of thinking than when I first got into teaching mathematics. Those were the speakers from day one of OME 2020. And now let's hear from our speakers from day two, Kamal Bob, Richard Van Kemp, Fawn Nguyen, and George Kuros. One of the things that I don't like, I don't know that I've felt this way as a student, but I don't like the rigidity of students' days. I think that this scamper through the day to cover all this material, it's it's incompatible with our attention cycles. And I also think that having a break in the day, I saw this at the, um, the Georgetown Day School that's in Washington, D.C. They had this pedagogical working group that they asked me to come up and have a dialogue with. And what was fascinating was that they have a period of time in the middle of the day where the whole school shuts down and they just let people do whatever they want. And so Obviously, it's a very privileged institution. It's rich and expensive, and so they can do things that regular people can't. But the thing that I liked about it was that it eased, I think, the cognitive burden on students and allowed them, in some instances, they would just go off and study. But in a lot of cases, what they did, and the school helped catalyze this, was that they would just have these topical areas where you could get together with whomever, students, teachers, some combination thereof, and just discuss these problems that were, some of them were lofty, climate change, big social injustice, those kinds of things. But what ended up happening was that they ended up referencing those problems in their classes. So the idea of problem-based learning, and they didn't use all that nomenclature, and they didn't try to force it into any particular jargon. But in the end, what I liked about it was that it, it broke the day up so that you could A, try to apply some of what you're using in, or learning rather, in ways that were appropriate to your experience and what you were actually thinking about without the constraints of the 35-minute bell schedule or the hour and 40 minutes, however long you guys do it. You know, like it didn't have that. So I, to me, that was, that's a huge part of the problem, that the days are just too rigid. And just a quick end to that thought is that point that you raised about the physical rigidity the desks bolted to the ground and they're all in rows and so on and so forth. I, like you, I just kind of survived in that. I didn't even question it. But I think that tending towards a more flexible structure and intellectual freedom is something that would be better. And if, if we kind of inculcate that early on, I think students would be better able to manage it as opposed to introducing it too much later. They don't know what to do, so they just go crazy and then they don't, they're not really... They're not attuned with managing the, the responsibility that comes with that kind of freedom. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share a story. When, growing up in Fort Smith in the Northwest Territories, we're officially quadrilingual. And what that means is Chippewayan Cree, French and English are spoken at any given time. We are the Métis capital of the Northwest Territories. Our Indigenous students are Gwich'in Mountain, Tlicho Dene, Norse Levy, Bush Cree, Dene Sutlere. And we had a teacher who desperately wanted us to understand Shakespeare. Desperately. This teacher n- never pulled it off. He was, he was, f- every year he was fought tooth and nail by the students. And it hit me years later that he, he very well could and should have been able to talk about Shakespeare and Macbeth. He just wasn't really good at explaining theme. Had he said, do you know how I'm going to create create some names just in case somebody from my hometown is listening. I'm going to create some names. So if somebody says, had he said, do you know how the heavy shields don't get along with the Heron family? And everybody in class would go, yeah. He could have said what Shakespeare was trying to show in this play was imagine if somebody from the heavy shield family had fallen in love with the, with the enemy family. Well, everybody in my class would have went, you know, it would never happen, impossible, taboo. And, he, and that's when he would have us. And he should have said, well, that's what this play is about. Well, of course, we would have all been listening and reading to try and figure out how something that we could never conceive happening in our community happened in what he wanted to talk to us about. He was never able to do that. And it hit me 20 years later. I'm a little slow, but it hit me 20 years later, like, what we were missing in that in that classroom was theme. He could never sell it to us because he was more he was more convinced that the curriculum points that he had to to you know to to impress upon us by our minister of education and the GNWT and and everything else that was his focus that was his priority that we weren't that audience we wanted something else. So what I'm hoping is that. At the end of the day, when, when I'm done presenting in my workshops and with the keynote, that, that every teacher in attendance really questions their technique and, and, and asks themselves, maybe I should be risking more of myself in what I'm teaching, and maybe I should be thinking about the themes that are going to reach this, this time of um, where, the, where the daily narcotic is online. Where, where people are, it, sometimes it's far more interesting with what's happening on your phone than what's happening in front of you. That's where theme comes in and that's where story comes in because again, connection, relationships. I think one that, that looms large for me as a learner, as a, as a math student, and then as an educator and also just as an adult and a parent. The one that keeps coming back is about the A grade, the student, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm skeptical of that A grade in mathematics because I was one, I was that student. I did well on the math test. I was a good student. I followed my instructions. I did my homework. I got A's throughout. I was an A kid. And sadly, I did not understand the mathematics deeply. And I didn't realize how deep it was or how much I could dig in until teaching it and, and just learning on my own and talking with people. 
so so that's you know it's a sad realization but at the same time it motivated me to change and undo what was done to me i mean i was never asked to really think about anything i was uh, asked to regurgitate information and i was very good at that i was very good with give me the formal i'll plug it in i'll do it all day i'll, I'll do a full worksheet because i was a, the good student right who, who would do that but you know i i really never experienced a struggle never knew what being stuck meant to be stuck with a problem and to simmer in it and yeah and and come back to it and and strategize and all that and if i did struggle at all it was very brief because the teacher you know would soon uh, give us the answer and explain the whole thing so so that's the most unfortunate i keep coming back and when a parent says you know at middle school uh, would say to me, well, my child was doing so well in elementary. Now she's, you know, she's having a hard time in your class. And, you know, I don't say this to the parent, but I'm thinking, well, I, I feel like it's very unfortunate that your child did not struggle in mathematics. And, you know, because that's, to me, that's learning, right? That's, that's asking questions. So to me, the big crux, that's why the problem solving is we're supposed to be stuck. We're supposed to be struggle. That's hence, that's the problem. Problem solving is doing something when you don't know what to do. And that's kind of the classic definition of it. And, and uh, because, you know, everything we do in mathematics is so polished, including the textbook, and it, it's very intimidating. You know, whatever happened to the struggle that's supposed to come with the learning, we don't let kids be exposed to those rich tasks that, that allow room for a productive struggle. So, so that's my skepticism of, you know, what is an A grade? Yeah, and I think, I, I guess I have two comments to that. One, I think in the same way that that A grade may falsely give a sense of a student's competence, I think a lesser grade may also falsely give in, an indication of a student's, for lack of a better word, incompetence. You know, and it reminds me of a. Uh, I just listened to a recent uh, podcast from this um, the show, The Story Collider, where it was uh, a guy talking about growing up with dyscalculia um, and how he struggled with you know simple multiplication, yet he was able to overcome that and became an engineer, and you know, many teachers would see that struggle in a student and and maybe write that and write, and write that kid off. That's right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Because we we measure, uh, you know, we measure unfortunately, you know, speed, right? Speed and accurate, you know, in terms of mathematics, how fast can you get that right answer? And I still see it in the classrooms. You know, you the teachers are still calling on the students with their hands up, and those are the kids producing the right answers. You know, I keep my mouth shut because I, you know. And it, they just tune out because of how the structure is set up. So exactly what you said. It, it's the other grade, right? The other grade that, that kind of defeats them for the rest of their mathematical life. Kind of, you know, it's just, yes, um, fulfilling prophecy. Yes, yeah, I got it. You know, I, I got a D. <laughs> I, I think for me, the idea, and I don't know if it's, it's partly because I've changed, but partly because the world has significantly changed is that the the teacher is the sole source of information. Now, it doesn't mean that teachers aren't the experts. That's not questioning that at all. But we have so much ability to connect and learn and share, not only within our classroom, but outside our classroom as well. So I think that's really what I'm trying to shift is that there's these incredible learning opportunities that go beyond our school. So if you're in a really small community, 
And, you know, you could have a school with two teachers. And if you only connect, I'm sure those teachers are brilliant. And that's not saying, but it does limit. Whereas now anyone in the world can connect with people around the world. And if we're always talking about providing a world-class education, it's really important we actually look at what the rest of the world's doing. So I think not only learning from other teachers, but learning from our students, I think that's really valuable. And I think that's a big shift in in, in what I've looked at, you know, in my, my career as an educator. Yeah, and, and I think that that's a that's a tough one sometimes for teachers too because you you're going from being the oracle in the classroom to almost a to a facilitator or to a curator and you know that that can be off-putting for some teachers yeah and i think i think we have to really honor teach i think that for me what i'm really trying to recognize is that the teacher is still the expert that's that's something that we have to still acknowledge because i think that there is a lot of pushback on that idea because teachers haven't been regarded as the expert in the classroom. It's just that you're not the only source of information now. You're still the expert. You're still, you know, that's what I'm expecting is that, you know, the teachers are very knowledgeable in the areas that they're teaching, obviously. But we do have to count and and tap into other, you know, resources, whether it's online or people to learn. And that includes within our class. So I think that, Really, as long as we're honoring the, the, the teachers in the room as the expert, I, I don't see, you know, there shouldn't be really a, a disconnect between the ideas. Well, there it is. A lot of food for thought. That was Mary Barassa, Dan Meyer, Marion Small, Ian Vandenberg, Valerie Camille Jones, Kamel Bob, Richard Van Camp, Fon Nguyen, and finishing off with George Kuros all telling us about things about learning or teaching that they believed when they began their careers, but perhaps don't believe anymore. If you want to hear more from those speakers, you can come out to the upcoming OME annual conference in May in Oshawa, where they will all be appearing. You can register at our MCAS registration site. Check out the link in the description. Well, that does it for our OME annual conference bonus episodes. Next month, we'll be back with the last of our regular episodes where we'll talk with Lisa Sertam and Christine LeBeau about their upcoming March webinar titled A Fusion of Math and Special Education. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you on the next OAME Talks.